You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 23. Ghosts to Houseplants. A single heavily scuffed volume of the Junior World Encyclopedia from the early 1960s, bought by some or other elderly relative from my brothers. In 16 volumes, it encompassed the entirety of human knowledge, or at least the human knowledge considered suitable and digestible for a mid-twentieth century child. I remember the Junior World Encyclopedia sitting on my brother's bookshelf in their shared bedroom. There it was, as dog-eared and well-used as the adjacent Biggles, Jennings and my brother's favourite, Gerald Durrell. By the age of eight, I joined them in eagerly devouring the contents from aardvark to army, not to mention paracutin to quicksand. I've managed to hold on to one solitary volume, Ghosts to Houseplants, and remember being fascinated by its four-page pictorial timeline of world history, beginning with the Paleolithic era and climaxing with the launch of Sputnik. Its final frame provides a drawing of a man in a loincloth attempting to make fire, with the poignant caption, In some remote parts of the world, there are primitive people still living in the Stone Age. But after reading and rereading its contents, I soon became frustrated by these 16 slim volumes. I knew that there were better encyclopedias out there, and my holy grail was a Britannica, or at least a children's Britannica. Noting my frustration, my parents returned from an antique buying spree one Sunday with a copy of Arthur Mee's Children's Encyclopedia from some time in the 1930s. I'll leave aside Arthur Mee's British exceptionalism and casual racism, a common feature in popular reference books of this time. I'll ignore the fact that the entries were not placed alphabetically. I'll even pass over Mee's strange obsession with classical erotic art. In truth, the children's encyclopedia was just plain dull. Worse than that, with sections entitled Simple Learning Made Easy for Very Little People and such like, it was cringe-makingly twee in a way you only find in children's books of yore. I wanted something better. I wanted a Britannica. For those who don't remember, the Encyclopedia Britannica was advertised in Sunday magazines and sold on easy terms with the first volume always free. I tried telling my parents that for the price of 60 cigarettes per week we could have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips and their youngest son would grow up to be a genius. But to no avail. If you need one that badly, you can use the copy in the local library for nothing, said Mum. Such was the commercial thrust of Britannica that they commanded whole battalions of salesmen, touting sets of encyclopedias door to door. In 1981, I fell into conversation with a regional sales manager for Britannica, who tried to recruit me. I wasn't remotely interested, but curiosity got the better of me as to how they persuaded a family of modest means to part with several months' wages for a set of books. Simple, he said. I sit down with the husband and wife on the sofa side by side in the living room. It's always best to have them both together. Then I point to a child's photo on the mantelpiece and say, How much would you pay for your son or your daughter to pass an extra two O-levels? 
I then ask them how much they're paying to rent their video recorder, and they say, wouldn't you want your children to spend their Sunday evenings learning about Greek philosophy rather than watching a tape of Mad Max 2? Never underestimate the power of monetizing parental guilt. You don't often see sets of encyclopedias anymore, except in the reference section of public libraries. Unread and gathering dust. Britannica printed their final hard copy set in 2010, by which time sales had fallen from their 1990 peak of 120,000 a year to 6,000. It still exists in digital form online, available through a paid subscription. The demise of its physical presence was far less traumatic, or even noticed, than that of the New Musical Express, or the Argos catalogue, or even Exchange and Mart. In fact, an article in Slate magazine, at the time it ceased printing, wished the publication good riddance. The writer of this column didn't mince words either when he wrote, Looking back, it's obvious that of all the gimmicky things my parents bought, these books were their biggest mistake. The most expensive, the most useless, and the most exploitative. Unquote. But the elephant in the room here, the punch that dealt printed encyclopedias their killer blow, is of course Wikipedia. It's the seventh most visited site on the internet, well ahead of TikTok, Reddit, more popular even than Pornhub. The only not-for-profit site in the top ten, it is now the go-to place for research, for schoolwork, and to settle those all-important pub discussions on who scored in what match. I even used it just now to confirm the declining sales figures for Britannica. To give you an idea of why printed encyclopedias were no match for Wiki, the site even has its own slightly boastful entry entitled Wikipedia Size in Volumes which gives a running update of how many Britannica-sized tomes, minus graphics, would result should anyone be foolish enough to print the whole thing out. Today that figure stands at 3,228 volumes. It's understandable, really. Wikipedia has a lot of articles similar to Britannica on countries of the world, great figures from history, or matters of science and art. But to pick a purely random example off the top of my head, Britannica never saw fit to publish anything as trivial as an entry on the British rock band Mungo Jerry. This entry features the band's history, changes in lineup, and a discography. The page also links to a separate entry for Ray Dorset, Mungo Jerry's mutton chopped lead singer, who we learn has been a Freemason for 45 years and suffers from irritable bowel syndrome. Fascinating stuff. In its heyday, Britannica attracted a lot of flack from academics for giving the impression that the sum of human knowledge could be found in two rows of doorstep books on a family shelf. There was, they said, an imperialist subtext to encyclopedias which suggested that, like Harrods or the British Museum, if we don't include it, or stock it or exhibit it, it's not worth considering. And now, with the mountain of sites on the World Wide Web numbering in billions, there is still the danger, with regard to human knowledge, that unless it's online, it doesn't exist. With future technological advances, it is possible 
that one day everything, everywhere, will be available to us online all at once. And on the day this happens, if it happens, we might all wish we were still living in the Stone Age. That was Ghosts to Houseplants, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.